On a, on a related uh, tangent to that, I am amazed by the variety of voices that you're able to channel uh, in your in your writing and your in the dialogue that you write. I mean, there are certain writers who are, v are very good at dialogue. It almost seems like an independent faculty sometimes. But what amazes me is is how various the voices are of your stories. I mean, taken together. I was thinking about this. It reminds me of the scene in Bruce Almighty when he's hearing the collected prayers of the world and this huge... No. The Jim Carrey movie? You never saw I, that? I missed that ah. one. No. I thought you were a Jim I've Carrey seen fan. All, I am a Jim Carrey mm -hmm. fan. I missed that one. Ah. Well, he's, uh, he's omniscient, and he can hear the mingled prayers of the universe, and it becomes this deafening chorus. I mean, there's so many different voices coming through. Uh, the only person, actually, I think of who writes dialogue at the level of you, just off the top of my head, is Robert Stone, uh, who's a real dialogue master. And I guess, um, I, since it's supposed to have a little bit of a craft element, this conversation, is there, um, do you have a particular method? I mean, how do you arrive, aside from just the faculty of listening as closely as you can, how do you arrive at that, 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 the, the pitch-perfect uh, dialogue that you write? Is there a... Is there a methodology there? Is there? A um, actually, I, I I love reading writers who I mean I think you know for my money one of the best writers of American dialogue is Elmore Leonard. Uh huh. He's uh -huh. a brilliant writer of dialogue. Right. I right. mean his narration is is kind of journeyman like. Right. But, right. but I, I love listening to his characters talk to each other. Sure. Um, and I can and I can think I can think of others too that. Uh, um, uh, but in, in writing myself, I, I, I sound it out a lot in my head, and, uh, and it's so related to character. Characters are not just what they do and where they come from. It's also, you know, what they say. And so mm -hmm. somehow or other what the character says, even the diction should be in some way expressive of the character, at sure. least over, a, over the period of a, of a piece, right? You sort of... Start hearing their tune, if you will. How do you get past that that point where uh, a boring person is expressing themselves boringly, mm. and uh, and you have to make it count? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a. a <laughs> that's a. That's that's that is a very that's a very hard question. Yeah. I mean, I suppose if you actually isolated most of the characters from my stories or from. Uh, you know, memoirs and novels by themselves. You actually described what they did in life, uh, that sort of thing. One and you know, one might imagine them to be boring people, and so there has to the interest has to come in in uh, the dramatics, the, the kind of situation they find themselves in, how they respond to that, and how they respond right. to other people. And that's where you lift them out of this trap of, of boredom but you know I, I have had uh, you know I have I have heard people say to, uh, to to writers who have shared a manuscript you know I hate to say this but this character seems really boring to me and then the person will say exactly this is uh, this that was exactly what I wanted this <laughs> character is supposed to be boring so then you say okay but then this character has to be boring in an interesting way right and and that's a right. that's you know that's a you know, you have to move the chip a little farther. Right. And, uh, and how do you do that? I, I, I don't know. You have to be able to somehow to hack away at it until you've been able to walk around this character. Yeah. Bit, you know? I mean, I find that in your stories, uh, even people who are sort of expressing ordinary sentiments 
because you set up the clockwork and the gearing dramatically, and they're in a, a sort of charge relationship to the to the time flow, it works. I mean, it, it that's one of the things that I was trying to express when I spoke about your work uh, at the beginning is that everything tells. Everything tells. Um, it's cut to the letter, in the words uh, of a poem. Um, you know, one thing that uh, that maybe you know, and, rela- and I'd be curious to hear what you ha- have to think about this too, Eli. Uh, but Andrea's quoting uh, Stephen King, who is a prodigally gifted writer, uh, and. Uh, you know, it isn't very many writers who can scare the devil out of you. And I remember, I remember our boy, one of our sons, who was at the time twelve. He wasn't a baby. We were up late with some friends drinking one night and talking. And so he comes storming down. He has Cujo in his hand, and <laughs> and, uh, and he slams it down on the coffee table in, in a white rage and says. You shouldn't let me read books like this. And, <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's a gift. Yeah, that's a real yeah, yeah. gift. And Poe, you know, boy, Poe had that for me when I was growing up. I remember still being unable to sleep after reading Poe. Right. I don't know if, do you remember that uh, piece? It's masquerading as an essay. It's actually a story called "Buried Alive." Right. in which he describes all these cases of people who have been buried alive and they open their graves later and find claw marks and all this. and It's horrible. And, uh, and, and, you know, I remember just not being able to sleep and finally, you know, my mother assuring me that she would be sure that if she were there that I really was dead before she buried me. <laughs> and, uh, who was the writer who uh, was famous because he was so scared by Poe that he had a custom-made coffin built with a bell and a string inside oh, wow. the coffin? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I, really? got, I could have done that. But, um, uh, to, but you know... So I'm not arguing with Stephen King as a writer here, but as uh, as a maker of axioms, uh, I will argue with him this uh, comment he made about uh, writing workshops being the the blind leading the blind. And I was, uh, uh, and that, you know, I think, I, I don't think writing workshops are great for everybody. I can't, for example, imagine that Kafka would have, well, really, would have thrived in a writing workshop, you know. <laughs> Borges. Uh, Borges. Yeah. I mean, really, there's yeah. a there there's there are families of writers who really I, I think that that it probably wouldn't have, have benefited them much, and it certainly benefited me tremendously. I was in a workshop with Alan Garganis and and uh, and a couple of other really fine writers, and they really helped me see some things that I was doing that I didn't realize I was doing that were very helpful to me to shed and also to encourage me in certain directions that, uh, that, that I'd been shy about pursuing. And it made, a, it made a lot of difference to me to have a passionate reader read something of mine and a good reader and respond to it. Uh, and, uh, and it obviously didn't hurt Raymond Carver any. It didn't hurt Ann Patchett any. It didn't hurt... Uh, Richard Ford, any to have people reading their work, and I frankly could sit here and name people all day long who pretty much make up our literature, a uh, good part of it, who have at different times uh, sat at the table with other writers and shared their work and, and have in some way or other, uh, uh, even if they've come in 
as teachers have found themselves in some profitable relationship with the passionate reading of text. In fact, it's nothing new. Writers have always done that. If you look at, uh, if you look, for example, at the manuscript pages of uh, T.S. You know, speaking of the wasteland, of the wasteland, it's got pounds, scribbles all over it. And he took a lot of those suggestions, pretty much all of them. In fact. Or F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald's manuscripts with Perkins uh, scribbles. Exactly, all absolutely, and and indeed, uh, uh, Fitzgerald responded to Hemingway's. Uh, the Sun Also Rises with some pretty tart criticisms, which Hemingway greatly resented, but used. And uh, <laughs> he got even, though, later. Yes, uh, he did. He poor face. Scott Fitzgerald, right? Yeah. And uh, as, as Fitzgerald once said, Ernest is always happy to give a helping hand to the man on the uh, ladder below him. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, ahead of him, the man on the ladder ahead of him, a helping hand. But... Uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, writers have done this uh, just as long as they've been writing, really, kind of showing each other their work. It's Was Gurganis the closest thing you had to a mentor, do you think, if you had to choose? Uh, as, as a mentor? No, I wouldn't have called him a mentor. He was a kind of, you know, he was, we were fellow readers. I think. You know, we read, shared our work. Did uh, you have a mentor? You speak a lot about mentoring in, uh, in old school. Yeah, I had a, I, I, the closest thing to a real mentor I had in terms of, 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 of making me aware. Well, first of all, just there was a. He just died the other day, and uh, his name was Neil McMahon. He was an English teacher at this, or an English master, as we called them, at the school that I went to. And uh, first of all, I was a very dazed and confused kid, and he really took me under his wing and was extremely kind to me. Uh, I didn't write very well. I wanted to be a writer, though. And uh, he did these wonderful kinds of exercises. He would bring in, for example, pages from uh, James Fenimore Cooper and say, turn this into good English, okay? And first of all, we all loved James Fenimore <laughs> Cooper, and so this was, a sh this was shocking. It was blasphemous. And, uh, and then you began to see, uh, because he made you do it, the bloatedness of the writing, the repetition of uh, unnecessary repetition of adjectives and indeed of sentences and sometimes of paragraphs, the uh, uh, the way in which the uh, descriptions could be made more forceful by becoming more economical, even indeed being left out altogether occasionally, that kind of thing. He, first of all, he taught us not to be not to be on our knees in front of things that called themselves literature, and second of all, to uh, you know, just a sharp, just taught us about the kind of musculature and skeletal, made us feel that struct, internal structure of, the, of, of English. And, and so both in personal and in teaching terms, and he was a, you know, he was, he was not a divine, he loved literature. But This was all at Hill School? Yeah, and, uh, you know, these were lessons that I carried real, really with me for the rest of my life, but I, I've certainly had, you know, we all move ahead by the grace of others in, in this life, and... Uh, and I have certainly had many people who've, who've helped me out along the way and uh, since. But that was, if, you, if you're looking for a kind of transformational right. moment for me. Right. But what about, I mean, you've, for example, you've taught in the Lighthouse here. I mean, what's your take on the whole workshop thing? Well, you know, I, I didn't uh, go the workshop route. I never had any involvement right. with that. So I, you know, and I had the, the anxiety that comes with not having uh, a community. You know, I was sort of all alone. I, 
I, um, I've got my, uh, my suspicions, criticisms, whatever you call them, of the, of the workshop program in America. I think that uh, what's happened is that a lot of people have learned to write competently, but that there's been a kind of certain flattening of, of originality. I mean, it's like, as somebody said, uh, with the elimination of the poet's main predator, money, Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly everybody could be a poet, you know, and, uh, and I, I, I think uh, that, as you said, a lot of good people have come through the MFA programs. Maybe they would have written their masterpieces if they hadn't been in them. Maybe they would have. I don't know. Um, you know, all that said, for me, uh, teaching at the Lighthouse, I, I, it gave me a lot of satisfaction because I actually felt like I was imparting uh, things to, to these people that were very, very useful, and they were very appreciative of them. There was definitely a, a transaction going on, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it made me happy. But I'm not really uh, I'm not really a teacher per se. It's not something that I've done a lot. Mm-hmm. I did that in Lighthouse. I taught a little bit in Italy, but that, that was more about American uh, literary history and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, but speaking of workshops, I, I don't think that uh, that a lot of the people here – know that uh, you taught uh, workshops uh, on military bases in 2005. Toby and I were talking about this last night, and we were talking about the way in which, I mean, it's always fascinated me that uh, there often uh, happens when people who are not trained writers suddenly uh, pick up English. Uh, They bring unusual qualities into the prose, and uh, oftentimes those qualities have to do with their own sort of discipline and their own relationship to their character and so forth and so on. But, I mean, a classic example of that are the letters of Sacco and Vanzetti, who were these semi-literate Italian anarchists who were unfairly executed in about 1918, 1919. Their English, which was lent wings by their passion and the nearness of their death, is considered a model today. And these guys were semi-literate, but it was a force of character that, that was felt through that. So I was very curious to hear a little bit about what uh, your experiences were teaching at Camp Lejeune, I think, and some other things. No, I, I, I wouldn't want to overstate this. Uh, this I, I was teaching, uh, uh, I joined a thing that, uh, an initiative that the uh, uh, National Endowment for the Arts uh, uh, chairman, Dana Joy, thought of. It was his idea. It was a great idea. And that was to uh, have workshops writing workshops for returning vets from Iraq and for their spouses if they wanted to come. Anyone who wanted to come, basically. Um, And this was called Operation Homecoming. And so I volunteered to do, uh, to conduct some workshops, and I did these just over the course of a long weekend at, uh, at, uh, yeah, most of us only did it for one long weekend. I don't think anybody did it for any more than that. I, I would have done more. Um, at, and I did mine with the Marines at Camp Pendleton. And it was fascinating. I mean, one of the things that really interested me, well, one thing that was great, I spent four years in the service and, uh, and uh, didn't quite graduate from high school and went in the Army and, and, uh, uh, and you know, was in, as I say, for four years. So I have, uh, you know, I have some memories and grudges and all that. And, and I had the signal pleasure of kicking a general out of my uh, classroom. <laughs> it was great. Because, How did that happen? Well, I, I had stipulated, first of all, somebody wanted to film it. I said, no, you can't film the workshop because it will make people self-conscious. And, uh, and I said, I also don't want any senior officers there. I, the junior officers who actually participate, who will participate 
uh, is, are okay, but I actually would prefer just to have enlisted people in there. And, uh, but no senior officers. So, you know, I look out there, and I've got like 35, 40 Marines in there, and in the back is the base commander, okay? For, you know, like a three-star general. Look, he looks like, you know, uh, he, in fact, had been, a, uh, I believe, a football player at the University of Oklahoma, so he was a really big guy, and, and, and I'd met him before, so I recognized him. I'd met him earlier that day, and, you know, I asked him to leave, and <laughs> it was great. How did he take it? He was with an ill grace. Uh, <laughs> it was his... Camp wasn't right it? in and front I, of his men. As yeah, well. I know, and but that was the deal, and so he left, and and uh, it was great because then I, you know, I, I guess I was the general in the room after that. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, I'm looking out, and a third of these people are women. A third of the Marines that were in that uh, room were women, and uh, and many women have been killed in Iraq, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's it was a different uh, it was. You know, if you had had a room full of troops like that after we came back from Vietnam, it wouldn't have looked the same. It, it right. And uh, so that was different. And uh, and after some initial kind of discomfort and how are you know how's this guy going to think about what I'm doing or how's my husband? Because sometimes there were women Marines whose husbands had stayed at home. Sometimes uh, men whose wives had to stay behind. So you know, I everybody wrote. You know, it, this wasn't about making everybody into a professional writer. This sure. was about encouraging people, really, to get things down on, uh, I didn't, you know, uh, expect anybody to be, uh, you know, because of this weekend, turning into, you know, you weren't going to see their work in Harper's in two months because of this. It, it, that, it doesn't work that way. And I was, I hope, clear about that. And. But uh, but just to, to to start getting these experiences down, you think you remember that stuff forever, and you don't. And uh, so to get that down and, and actually make make your experiences part of the record, because we need a record of this thing, of what really went down, what it really feels like. Did they write about combat a lot of them? A couple of them did. A few of them did, absolutely. I remember vividly this one description of these uh, uh people walking along this road, and they're hoping to surprise this group. And I'll still, I still remember, you know, it was a year and a half ago or so, two, maybe even two years ago when, I, when these workshops were held, and, you know, uh, all these guys, you know, the dogs started barking, and they knew they'd been given away. And, you mm. know, and I just, uh, all that, it was so vivid. That's the kind of thing you can forget later. Mm. So getting that stuff down, and actually some of it was quite sophisticated. Some of the writing was quite sophisticated. And uh, it, later, uh, the National Endowment for the Arts published this very fine book called Operation Homecoming with some really terrific writing in it that came out of those workshops. And indeed, the New Yorker published several. Hmm. You know, there was one issue. Remember, it showed some people like in a trench, uh, and they had several excerpts of writings from uh, from this program. So there really actually was some really fine work done, but I just think it's valuable for people who have endured something like that uh, uh, to, to get it down so, so that they have that as a resource for later on mm. and yeah, for their families to read. And then now, of course, uh, 
with it, with people being able to post things online, you you begin to have this uh, enormous archive that's open to the public of, of the experience of an yeah. army and, and individuals in this situation. It's a useful corrective to the fog of uh, propaganda and everything else. Absolutely. You've you've taught for a while. Um, I read somewhere you saying, um, apropos of, I mean, critique, as we all know, anyone who's taught, is a very delicate moment, uh, especially with critique of writing, which so often involves the airing of uh, intimacies. You said in an interview that you like teaching literature better than writing because in teaching literature, you don't have to worry about hurting people's, hurting people's feelings. And you said, quote, I have to be honest, of course, but I have to be sure that my honesty comes in a form that is not destructive because it can very easily become so. And then I read somewhere else that you, you spoke about how early on in teaching you kind of felt like you, you went past the point where you might have and, and, and hurt some people's feelings. Mm-hmm. And now I know uh, from a variety of sources that you're actually, you know, you're uh, uh, appreciated for the gentleness with which you handle people. So it doesn't surprise me at all knowing you now, but... Uh, can you talk a little bit about your education in the art of critique? Yeah. Um, I mentioned this teacher I had who I so valued. Uh, and <laughs> he taught with sarcasm, biting irony, uh, and uh, he made me... I. He made me laugh at myself when I did something silly on the page, and he, and he did others. I will say that not everyone appreciated his uh, <laughs> pedagogy. Uh, but I did in the way that you might uh, brag later about having had a really tough drill sergeant in, you know, in, in boot camp. And, and, uh, and I guess, and, and later on in my university uh I went to university in England. I went to Oxford, and the, the tutors I had there uh, made something of a uh, a creed of not suffering fools gladly. And and if I used you know uh, words inopportunely, uh, wrote a clumsy sentence, you know I could hear them wince across the room. And and uh, and they were also quite uh, they had quite a. a, a Finely honed edge uh, to their responses sometimes to, to 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 things, and I internalized this way of teaching. And, and but the truth is, it wasn't it wasn't natural, I think, to me to do that. And uh, and I I could see that it really wasn't uh, it really wasn't helping all the time to you know, to try to get someone to laugh at himself at something he'd written. And, you know, it didn't move, it didn't move the story along. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, as St. Paul says, uh, you know, fathers, uh, don't, be, uh, don't, don't be hard on your children. It will discourage them and they'll lose heart. And, uh, and a little bit of that, happens, I think, can happen, in, I think, in the classroom. And it partly, I think, pro- probably I was affected by the birth of my own children, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and not, you know, too long after I started teaching. And, uh, and I, you know, certainly very quickly observed that, uh, that the gentle way 
was a better way to teach children than a harsh way. And, uh, and I guess that probably tempered my, my way of, 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 of teaching in the classroom as well. But it wasn't really thought out so much. It was hmm. an evolution, Evolve. really. It, or it, I hope it was an evolution. I'm but it probably I'm not as much fun as I used to be either. But, uh, <laughs> I doubt that. I you doubt know, at that. least fun for the people whose story is not being discussed. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, oh, Lord. <laughs> It can, I remember Ray Carver telling me a story once. Ray, Ray could be uh, tell really hard stories on himself. His own, he could he was capable sometimes of terrible moral, moral cowardice, like the rest of us. And uh, unlike the rest of us, he would tell about it. And uh, <laughs> so he told me about when he first arrived at Iowa, and they were handing out uh, the stories to be discussed at the next workshop, and and. Some guy's work was going to be discussed, and Ray read the story and just loved it. And uh, and he happened to he and the other guy happened to show up first at the workshop before the rest of the class showed up. And uh, and he he had about five ten minutes with the guy, and he just kept telling him how much he loved the story, and he went through the different things that that really appealed to him about it. He was very enthusiastic about it. And the rest of the workshop arrives, and the guy who's leading the workshop, and they proceed to blow this poor man to pieces for an hour and a half. And, and, uh, and I said, well, Ray, what did you respond? He said, I didn't say a word. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he said, the guy kept looking at me. And, and, and speak, I just, he speak. said, and I just tried to look at the floor and I didn't say, I didn't say anything. But, uh, you know, so maybe that was fun for everyone else, but it wasn't fun for, for the, for the, the person whose story was being discussed. Yeah, and it probably didn't make a better writer out of him. Uh, so, yeah, you want to survive to write the next story. Right, right. It's very easy to damage. Uh, damage it is. People. It is. It's easy to. Uh, and the truth is that um, I also, you know, have learned, and I, I, I say this now with some kind of aw shucks, uh, you know, humility. Um, but I have learned, uh, actually, to quote our friend Leonard Michaels, uh -huh. uh, that I do not read with the eyes of God. And so. You know, I'm, I'm, as time goes on, I'm more and more appreciative of the complexity of voices, the, dif the, the, the differences of approach to this whole enterprise of sure. ours. And, and, uh, and so, you know, this might be something going on in this writing that maybe I'm not fully, you know, on top of yet, and I don't want to sit too hard on it. You mentioned how many uh, women uh, soldiers there were in the room. Are, are there more women uh, in MFA programs now than there used to be? I have no idea. I have no idea. I, I, uh, Stanford, I, I teach uh, at Stanford. I teach, uh, actually most of the students I teach at Stanford by my choice are undergraduates. Um, I do teach the, uh, the Stegner Fellows uh, workshop at Stanford in fiction, but that's not, we don't give a degree there in creative writing. We deliberately got rid of it some years ago. Um, there seemed to be quite enough of them. And, uh, and this allows everybody to just concentrate on the work at hand and not be after some credential at the end of it. But, but right. the, the, the pursuit of the work itself and the perfection of the work is, is yeah. what you concentrate on. And I don't really know what the demographics are no of yeah. uh, the MFA program. 
I wanted to ask you one more question, and then we can take some questions from the audience. And that question has to do with Hemingway. Uh, I, I know how important he was to you. He was extremely important to me, too. Uh, and uh, the parody in Old School is just, uh, you know, pitch perfect had me howling. Uh, in an interview you somewhere, you said, seeing pictures of Hemingway leaving Madison Square Garden with Marlena Dietrich on his arm seemed like a pretty good reason to become a writer. <laughs> True. So my question is... And that was before I'd even read him. <laughs> really? Yeah. So the question is, if you can talk a little bit about how you processed his influence, because uniquely, I think, among writers, uh, he was his own uh, sort of uh, mythos, and uh, he that was Bellow's criticism of him, was that increasingly, as the work went on, he uh, the, the, the sort of background tone of the whole thing was, was him. Yeah. And it really infected and, you know, kind of dragged down the material. Uh, I love his work. I think he's one of the most important stylists in uh, American literature. That's, I, Francine Prose, for example, who was here last year, uh, thinks, you know, he's, uh, he's pretty negligible and ridiculous. And a lot of uh, the f feminist critique mm -hmm. against Hemingway, of course, is withering. Uh, so... How do you how do you sort of boil the lessons of the style and let go of the macho BS? Yeah. The well, Bello, as in almost everything, is right uh, that uh, Hemingway in his later years absolutely became pathetically captive to this myth of you know this uh, you know taciturn. Uh, Detached, competitive, right. uh, overcoming kind of character, and uh, that is not the Hemingway that that uh, you will discover in the early, even into the middle and late middle work uh, at all. Quite the opposite. The uh, the, the stories uh, in uh, in our time and up in Michigan. Uh, are very very tender, in fact, and the uh, uh, and the characters are so fragile in it. I mean, you know, in another country, oh my God, that story about this man trying to recover from this wound and surrounded by these other wounded people, and you know, Andre de Buse once wrote a wonderful essay about that story, in, in which he, you know, it was after he Andre himself was crippled in a terrible accident mm -hmm. and. And he, and he talked very wisely about that story being about the futility of cures, as he puts it. And that was a great insight, I thought, into that story. And it is. It, it, there's, a great, there's great wisdom, and there's no machismo at all in those early stories. There just isn't. And, I mean, you know, don't forget that in A Farewell to Arms, he deserts. He, des he dives into a river to get away from all that. He, he gives it up. And... Uh, uh, and the story, and, you know, Big Two-Hearted River, this is a guy who's so on the edge, so close to f kind of an internal fracture that he can't even get it up that on a particular day, day to fish in the really deep water because he knows that the fish will take, take advantage of him in you, a way. You, you, you talked about reading that story the first time and just basically being stunned by the kind of uh, cinematic element of it and then reading it again later and seeing the unease, yeah. and seeing all the listing of things is actually his attempt to 
keep himself together. That's right. Absolutely. They're just the, the timbers kind of erected every day yet again to kind of shelter himself uh, from this world of the buffeting of it. And then later on, yeah, I mean, you do catch the manner. But I have to say, uh, it's not his great work, but read, say, the opening of uh, even a, a book like, say, Islands in the Stream, which came out after his death, and it's very macho, and so much so that George C. Scott couldn't wait to play the main <laughs> character in a movie. Uh, but, I mean, you know, even grew the beard and the whole thing. Um, but, but if you read the opening, if you read it, if you read the opening uh, pages of that, they are beautiful. You know, that wonderful rhythmic prose. Right. Uh, he is not negligible. That, that simply, that claim doesn't hold water. It, it, if, if you walk into a room and someone else has been there before and they've changed all the furniture around in the room and then you hang a new picture on the wall, uh, you've done something to that room and you've added something to it, but you might not notice how the furniture's been changed around or really understand how, but it has been and it it. it it has an effect on how you move in that room, how you sit, and how you talk to others. And Hemingway did that. He changed all the furniture in the room. He really did. Uh, I was always proud of the fact that he couldn't have come from anywhere but America, you know? Yeah. He, he, he really couldn't have. It, yeah. A Brit could never have written like that. No, no, uh, absolutely not. And so, in fact, I mean, uh, Louis Untermeyer, uh, who was given such a hard time by him in uh, uh, The Sun Also Rises, renamed him Robert Cohen, if you'll remember. Mm. Uh, but Untermeyer uh, once said, and I, with, of, of the writers of his generation, but it also really went a lot on a lot longer than that. He said, half the young writers tried to imitate him and the other half tried not to. And, <laughs> you know, there's something even more telling about the trying not to, isn't there? Right. Uh, I mean, right. it's so consciousness. I mean, one is so conscious of the, of the pervasiveness of that influence. Later, it, later it gets worked through, uh, and you know it's now. I, I, I think it's settled. It's just become right. part of the of the landscape. I think of you actually in, in the short stories as one of the few uh, writers who harnesses some of the same white space. I mean, that was Hemingway's famous thing that he actually would concentrate so hard on the sentences uh, and that the white space around them would be part of the readerly experience. And it's a very subtle alchemical kind of thing. I think that the computer probably works against it to a certain extent. But mm. um, in any event, all right, are there any questions out there if we can see uh, through the blinding Klieg lights? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, he was... Uh, we taught together, uh, uh, and in a couple of places actually. We taught together in uh, uh, at a place called Goddard College in Vermont, and uh, they had a low residency MFA program. We go up there for these freezing two weeks in the winter, uh, Plainfield, Vermont. One night, in fact, while I was there, uh, it was the coldest place in the world. Uh, but uh, <laughs> they said it was anyway. Uh, and then two weeks in the summer, and, it, and, and uh, the first time Ray and I fetched up there, we'd met a couple of times in California, but didn't know each other very well. But we were the it, Goddard College was a an, an experimental school, and uh, you know along the lines of Hampshire College right. and that, right. that, and they had a uh, a primal scream dorm, <laughs> and, and 
the primal screamers were not in the dorm when we were there, but uh, I guess they were encouraged as part of this to, uh, you know, there was a dorm where they spoke Spanish, and then, you know, uh, this was this dorm. And they had completely, tra part of it, I guess, was just throwing tantrums, too, and so the furniture was just a trash. <laughs> so anyway, Ray and I were staying together in this dorm, and... Uh, we both had insomnia, and we ended up staying up all the time, talking all the time. He was a great raconteur, and, uh, and uh, with enough coffee in me, I can tell a story, too. So we would stay up all night talking. We became great friends and continued to teach there, and then ended up uh, from 1980 on. We taught at Syracuse University together as well until he left in uh, 1984, um, and then we, were, we stayed in very close touch uh, for the next five years and until he, he, he died. But he was, uh, uh, he was, boy, talk about, I mean, he and I were the fiction writers at Syracuse, and we were known as good cop, bad cop. And, uh, <laughs> and he was good cop. And uh, this is before, I guess, the lessons of fatherhood had penetrated my pedagogy. But, <laughs> but uh, I'll never forget one of his students telling me that, he had brought, Ray could not say a mean word to anybody. He simply couldn't do it. Or anything that might even be construed as, as negative. Uh, so someone had brought in an absolutely abysmal story uh, that he could not think of anything good to say about, I guess. <laughs> so he leaned over with the most agreeable expression on his face, and he could be very agreeable. He said, this is a good one to have behind you. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? He was, oh, he, sorry, was the, please. he was the really just the kindest of men. Uh, he, but he, uh, he had a terrible sweet tooth, and, uh, and he hoarded sweets. He hoarded <laughs> chocolate. And he had made a trip. He'd been over to Switzerland, and, he, and I knew he brought home, back this enormous haul of Swiss chocolate. And it was Halloween, and I was taking my boys around the neighborhood. And he had all his lights turned off. And uh, <laughs> he didn't want to give it away. No. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, I was like, I was like, you know, uh, a, a Bolshevik or something, uh, you know, calling on the factory owner. And and uh, <laughs> and I started yelling. I said, "I'm not leaving until you come down here and share your stash with my kids." <laughs> and so he came down in this big bathrobe and kind of sullenly handed out <laughs> small pieces of his Swiss chocolate but uh, and turned the lights off again and retreated back upstairs. Uh, are there any other uh, questions? Yeah. I'm, I have no uh, hesitation to borrow from my own past and to use my memories in my stories. I think all writers do that kind of in a way all the time, even if they attribute that those things to other people, even people much older or much younger or people of another gender or even of another race. I mean, our, everything we know of life that we can write about has somehow come through our lives. And so there's some, I think, autobiographical uh, shading to everything that we write. Uh, sometimes it becomes more overt, sometimes less. Uh, none of the stories in The Night in Question uh, is directly uh, 
autobiographical, though. Um, and, uh, I mean, you would know that about Bullet in the Brain. Uh, but uh, other, other stories, other stories, one mightn't feel uh, quite so clear about that. I've certainly had people say of one of the stories in there, actually a couple uh, of the stories in there, why didn't you put those in this boy's life? And I said, well, they didn't really happen. Not, not the way I described them. There may be some germ here, or the situation is very close, but it didn't really happen. And I actually don't believe in calling uh, fiction by the title a memoir. And uh, I know I'm getting to be in the minority on this, but, uh, uh, but I really do try to keep these things straight. And, uh, and so I would not call something that I'm very conscious of inventing uh, uh, around a... Uh, uh, I would not call that nonfiction. And... Um, it's very liberating, though, to to write under the guise of fiction because, you know, you're you can you can go pretty close to the bone sometimes, and and yet you always have the mask, if you will, of fiction in front of you. You don't. There's not that terror that you can sometimes feel in writing a memoir. Why am I telling people this? You know, and <laughs> and how how will I ever face so and so again? Or you know what I mean? And uh, and so uh, you know, not all my fiction depends on that kind of autobiogra autobiography, but I don't hesitate uh, when it, when it uh, suits my purposes as a writer to do that, and I also don't feel any fidelity to the memories. That is, I don't, they don't have to be just as I say. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I mold both the invention and the memory into a single thing as much as I can. I just can't uh, conclude without asking you this, because ever since I read it, I've wondered, did you really, uh, through the agency of a pal, steal high school stationery and write letters praising yourself and the names of uh, your teachers and send them to prep schools? To yeah, how do you schools? think I got in? That's uh, unbelievable. That's unbelievable. How could, how could Hill School, which is an ace school, how could they have been uh, hornswoggled like that? I mean, you were, as a 15-year-old, you were already that competent to be you able know, to... this sounds... I, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't want... There, there are two things. Not, it's interesting. Not, I applied to a lot of schools, and I got no encouragement. And one of them... Well, anyway, I, and I got no encouragement from any of them except the one that gave me this full scholarship. <laughs> and, and it's interesting. That was the last one I applied to. And I stuck in a short story that I'd written ah. in that manuscript and in that application. And the director of admissions, Garrett L. Green, I still remember him to this day, uh, used to stop me on the quad uh, after I got there and say, I hope you're still writing. And I think it was, you know, it was story. my writing that saved me, you know. It, it, yeah. it, I, all the phony letters I wrote and all that stuff didn't do it. Uh, but uh, but they obviously didn't disqualify me. He must have spent more time reading my story than reading the letters. Right, the letter but, praising you. <laughs> but I, I finally did get, uh, the school did uh, very kindly give me a high school diploma about 10 years ago. And, uh, <laughs> and at, the, uh, at the occasion where this was awarded to me, uh, the headmaster of the school read excerpts from some of these letters. <laughs> <Did he> really? <laughs> and, 
There were there was a lot of allowance made. You know? <laughs> well, these these people in Concrete High School, these teachers could probably use a little education themselves. But you know, uh, anyway. wonderful, wonderful. Okay, well, listen, you've been a great audience. Thank you very much for coming today. Thank you. And thank you.